This podcast is brought to you by WeTransfer, the world's largest file transfer service. Since 2009, WeTransfer's free platform has been enabling creative thinkers around the world. Visit wetransfer.com today and see for yourself. Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie from Mag Culture. Welcome to What About, the podcast about how initial ideas develop into the fully formed stories we find in magazines. I like to imagine the writer at the editorial meeting leaning forward to convince his colleagues of an idea, saying, What about? Each episode of What About looks at one story from one magazine. We open with me talking to the editor about the origins of the story, and then we get to hear it, read in full. We're focusing on the individual story, that essential building block of magazine making, and the editorial work that goes into creating and finessing it. Editor Peter Meehan is one of the founders of San Francisco food magazine Lucky Peach. It shifted food writing away from restaurant reviews and recipes towards a bolder, more experiential approach. Sadly, the current issue is its final one, but its legacy continues in the host of indie food titles it has inspired. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for having me. Now, I say editor, and that role is, uh, I'm not sure whether that's the right thing to say, given that, sadly, the magazine is just in the process of closing. Are you still the editor? I guess I was the editor and then I was the pallbearer and now I'm just, you know, somebody sitting at the gravesite. It's very sad that it's come to an end, but it's certainly ended with a bang, with a final double issue. And it is a big, thicker issue, but it's a best of, which is a hugely satisfying compendium. Was it difficult pulling the pieces together from the seven years of the magazine? Yeah, I mean, I had to look at it as a retrospective instead of a best of because there's just too many darlings to Uh fit into 208 pages. But yeah, you know, there were a lot of 10,000 word stories we ran that I would have liked to put in here, but then there would have been four stories in the issue and, you know, that wouldn't have (laughs) sufficed. Yeah, yeah. I have to say this final issue is a typically good mix of some very good long-form coverage, but then also some snappier pieces and also some great pieces about how to make magazines or how we make magazines. Was that a conscious part of what you were trying to do, perhaps encourage other people to take on the baton? Yeah, I mean, I my art director honestly laughed out loud when I said this one time, so I, <laughs> I say it with some amount of awareness that it's ridiculous. But I think for myself and for Chris Yang, who I started the magazine with, Lucky Peach was sometimes a magazine about food magazines. So I think that it was fitting in the end to talk about how we made it and what it was. And, you know, and it being a retrospective of the work we had done, getting a chance to celebrate the hard and strange work that the business team and the publishing team puts into getting the editors and the artists get all the glory for doing the creative work. But there's a lot more that it takes than just putting words and pictures together. You know, you have to organized with a printer and get it shipped and get it to people's houses. And I feel like highlighting that a little bit was important to me. And I felt like celebrated the whole uh, history of the magazine. Uh Realistically, there's a time when all magazines must come to an end. And it's always an upsetting time. Was there one reason why the magazine did come to an end at this time? Or was it more complicated than that? It's a complicated situation. But essentially, you know, Dave Chang, who was one of the partners with Chris and I, who started the magazine and I, were brothers in arms when we started it and and we had just written a book and started a television series and this was something we both felt passionately about and I think by the end of it he didn't feel the same way about it that I did and ultimately we just couldn't find a way to rectify the business needs of the magazine with what he wanted to do career-wise and with what I wanted to do with the magazine. So it's kind of like the old creative differences in the music industry thing. It's Yeah, yeah, the band broke up. And, <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot of different reasons that you get to the point where the band breaks up, but at a certain point, 
you know, we just, we weren't going to play on together. For sure. And one of the great pieces in this compendium issue is a piece that you wrote, Peter. It's a typically long-form piece. It's a profile of the chef Claudia Fleming. Give us a sense, for those listeners that don't know uh, her and her work in the restaurants, what's important about her as a person? Well, thank you for picking it. It's easier to talk about other people's pieces, but I, <laughs> I do I do like this one, and I liked finding it. This came about in 2013 when we were doing our second Cooks and Chefs issue. We did three of them over the 25-issue run of the magazine. And one of the things that we were looking for when we were putting that issue together were, I don't know, it seemed meaningful at the time. We we were going to do a profile of this guy, Alex Lee, who's another person that most people today in food haven't heard of, but he was a titan in New York. He ran Daniel Ballou's fine dining restaurant. He was the the power behind the throne, the terror in the kitchen, uh-huh. the guy who, you know, threw the pans and made everything happen. And so we had that one lined up. And Claudia Fleming was the biggest pastry chef in New York at the turn of the century, which is when I moved to the city. She was the pastry chef at Gramercy Tavern, which was the number one restaurant in every guidebook for years and years and years. And then at a certain point, she disappeared. She left the city and she disappeared entirely from the dialogue about food in the city, except for passing mentions about seasonal dessert. So I was very interested in tracking her down and talking to her about about food media, about the way that chefs are treated. Because when I got into food, she was a speaker at conferences and someone who was featured in the newspaper regularly. And a dozen years later, I asked people, you know, where's Claudia Fleming? Uh-huh. Where's she cooking? Where's she at? And, and people didn't know or hadn't seen her in years. Uh-huh. So for me, it was interesting to go and find her. And, and I thought it would be a story about that sort of transition because there's so much focus on what's new and what's now and who's young and what's hot and happening in restaurant and food coverage. And I wanted to, with both of these profiles, we were trying to talk about people at the stage in their professional career past that. Absolutely. And the other thing that strikes me from the piece itself is that she's a woman in a particularly macho man's world. And she's clearly a very different character. She's stood fast to her nature. We try to represent all the people who are involved in the food making process, not just like fancy white dudes with toques. So it was certainly part of it was to find a female chef who had been at the top of the profession and mm-hmm. fallen out of it and seen why and how. And she also wasn't someone who left to have kids or start a family. So it seemed like it, it would be an opportunity for a good story like that. She also had worked at a number of really important places over the years. And I think that an awareness of history and who's created what and what's come before is very important in any creative field. And any, anything you're interested in, uh-huh. you want to know the lineage that brings those things forward. So, And perhaps, again, for the, the non-foodie listener, just give us a context in terms of what it means to be the pastry chef rather than the executive chef. So she did the desserts. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. And the thing that she did is when she rose to influence at Gramercy Tavern, New York food, and I imagine food in fancy restaurants around the world, was very tall and ornate and massaged and architectural. And she brought a seasonality and a simplicity to it, which was happening in California at the time and hadn't been brought to the East Coast. And it changed the way that restaurants in New York started approaching dessert. And so that was a significant change, and that kind of helped usher in, you know, a more uh, farmer's market-aware approach to cooking on the pastry side of the kitchen. So having decided that you wanted to do this piece, and presumably Claudia was easy to track down, even if she was out of town and was up for doing it, 
How do you, as editor and writer, then try and combine those two roles? I mean, normally you might be commissioning a writer, so you might have an idea and a structure to hand over and suggest, and then they fly with it. How does it work when you're doing both sides of the equation? Well, I think one of the things that helped Lucky Peach be a good magazine was that we had, there was myself, there was Chris Ying and Rachel Kong, who was eventually the executive editor. All three of us edited, so a piece... Like, I went through the email chain about this piece knowing I was going to talk to you about it, and Rachel and Chris both put hands on this one. And Uh this one, they edited a little bit less. I did a better job on this one, but early on at the magazine, we would round robin pieces, you know, two or three times and really beat them up. So that was definitely part of the editorial process at Lucky Peach from the beginning to the end. Even with the website, we would have two sets of eyes go over anything, trying to tighten it up and then run it through fact-checking to to make sure it was accurate. I could imagine perhaps not on this piece, but in certain situations, that oversight causing some friction or some angst? Internally, we all knew what the others would do. You knew whose habits, what they would bring to it. I swung a dull cleaver um, as an editor. (laughs) That was my work. Rachel did great finesse work, and Chris was really great at helping people set up stories and structures early on and incredibly, like, watchmaker meticulous with grammar and details and putting things together at the end. So we all had different sets of skills that we would bring to editing of a story. And we knew that internally. Sometimes when writers would come in, they could end up perhaps being a little bit surprised at the waves and waves of editing that would would happen to pieces. But I think For the most part, people were happy with Mm -hmm. where we ended up in the editorial product that came out of the machine. So was it tricky tracking her down to find her to run this piece? It was trickier than people who are working at restaurants in the city. I emailed a number of people being like, hey, you know, this uh, Chef Brooks Headley of Superiority Burger here. I had interviewed him and he had spoken long and lovingly about Claudia's influence on his cooking. So I wrote to him and he didn't know. I wrote to a bunch of people and they didn't know. And I eventually found the name of the restaurant she was working at, and wrote to her directly. And we spent a couple weeks going back, and she hadn't seen Lucky Peach. She wasn't in the media environment of New York. And eventually, I got a date to go out there and see her. It was only two weeks before we closed the issue. So it was kind of tight and down to the line. And I took this three-hour bus out onto Long Island to meet with her. And that was when we did the interview. And that's when I found out I had known her husband had ALS I guess because I read about it when I was preparing to do the interview. But when we sat down to do it, the amount of truth and the honesty, both about her career, about the people who had mentored her, and about the change that was going on with in her life. Uh, her husband was a chef and a partner, and they'd moved out of the city to open an inn and restaurant. And he was beginning to go into the early stages of decline of ALS. And it was just this, you know, you can't, prepare or plan for someone to be as open and honest as she was with me. But we spent three hours really talking through everything. And I left with like a head full of, wow, someone just, you know, really gave me a lot of story that I've got to responsibly put on the page for her. And do you follow up a lengthy interview like that with further clarifications and discussions with her? Did you follow up with phone or email or did you just leave it at that? I left and I had, you know, maybe a week to put the piece together. So I put it together and sent it to Chris and Rachel, and we knocked it out in seven days. And then I sent it back to Claudia because there is really very personal, emotional, difficult stuff that she shared with me that I put in the piece. And we had about three days until we were going to the printer, and I didn't hear back from her. Now, there's a journalistic thing where you don't check an interview with a source, right? 
But this, I felt uh-huh. like because I was writing a profile and I wasn't trying to expose her, I was trying to learn about her. So I tried to share what I'd written with her and I didn't hear from her and we were going to print and I was really conflicted about writing about someone's husband dying without knowing that she was going to bless that part of the interview because she was so open with me. But at like the 12th hour, you know, like when we were about to go to print, she wrote back and and she said she would have been fine if I didn't print it. And she felt like it was too many words to dedicate to her and her story, but she was okay with it. So once I had that blessing, I felt like we were good to go to print. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, this was back in 2013, and I'm aware there's been some updates then. And I don't want to go into them in terms right now because I want people to listen to the piece and hear it, the full story. But before we move to the piece, can you fill me in what Claudia is up to now? Is, is she still working in restaurants? She is. She still has the North Fork Inn, which is the restaurant that she and Jerry, her husband, opened. And I think she's planning what comes next for her. We fell out of touch after this story. I tried to rope her in for to do some like pastry recipes for the magazine because I really do love what she makes. And we were unable to ever line anything up. And then when we were putting this final issue together, my co-editors thought that this piece should go in. And I love it, but I wouldn't have necessarily picked it because I wrote it. And so we didn't have time to do photos the first time around. So I kind of barraged her with emails until she wrote back to me and sent a photographer out to spend a day with her. And we had a chance to, to catch up. Uh, right before this issue went to print. And she said that reading it when it came out was difficult for her. And she thought it might have been a mistake to say so much to someone. And that's a hard thing to hear, you know, from someone that you've, you've written about. But that over the years, she's proud and happy to have shared that and put this part of her story in print. And that's, as a writer, what greater thing could you ask for than than helping someone tell their story and, and put it down at a point in time when it was ready to be shared? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Peter, for joining us and telling the background of the story. And let's cut now to hear the story. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Life and How It Happens to a Cook by Peter Meehan Was there life before Gramercy? Claudia Fleming laughs my question about her training back at me. I think I was born there. But there was, life before and after her nine-year tenure as the celebrated pastry chef of Gramercy Tavern, during the era that permanently installed that restaurant at the top of tourist itineraries in New York and elevated the statuses of chef Tom Colicchio and restaurateur Danny Meyer from savants to luminaries. Her desserts were a philosophical wrecking ball that toppled the spiraling spun-sugar artifices and architectural pastry excess of mid-90s New York. I was putting two things on a plate. There's dessert. You can eat it. You don't have to deconstruct it, she tells me. She's downplaying her virtuosic skill, ignoring how hard it is to make simple food beautiful enough to be served with nothing to hide behind and absolutely not addressing how she yanked New York restaurant desserts out of the 80s and into the modern, seasonally informed style that is still dominant today. Not that she would take the credit, sitting there on a weather-beaten folding chair in the grassy green backyard of the inn on Long Island that she now runs with her husband, Jerry Hayden. Claudia won the James Beard Foundation's Outstanding Pastry Chef Award at the turn of the century, after nominations two years in a row. Bon Appetit lauded her in the pre-Bro Appetit era, Best Pastry Chef 2002. She was routinely feted by food and wine until a falling out with the magazine's editors around 2006. 
Her name has receded from the conversation about pastry, except when chefs like Brooks Headley of Del Posto or Nicole Krasinski of Statebird Provisions cite the influence of her desserts or her out-of-print cookbook, The Last Course, co-written with Melissa Clark. I don't care about dessert, she says. She's telling me this while I'm stuffing my face full of her pastries, scarfing them like a sunburned little fat boy in a pie-eating competition. You know the Pinterest-perfect confections of all the artisanal pastry shops that have opened in the last decade? Right now, one of Claudia Fleming's crostatas is lifting its leg on those amateur hour concoctions in a shaming show of dominance. When I was a dumb kid just moved to New York from the Midwest, anytime somebody's parents came to town with money to throw down, we'd make them take us to Gramercy. And the desserts, as plain Jane as they pretended to be, always hit me, like the moment when Dorothy's world goes from sepia tone to color, or when Kelly LeBrock came alive in weird science. My best days are behind me, Claudia tells me, dismissing the flaky, buttery evidence to the contrary that has made a mess of my shirt. Let people take the mantle and do what they're going to do. It's a young person's game. To be good at it, you can't really have too much other stuff going on. I used to go to sleep thinking about things and wake up thinking about flavor combinations. Do you know what a luxury that is? You're sealed off from shit. Good shit, bad shit. But I don't feel competitive anymore. I don't have the fire in my belly, you know? She says sincerely. Life happens. Jams. Fleming was born on Long Island, Brentwood, right in the middle. Horrible place, not at all nice. But spent as much time in New York City as she possibly could. By the 70s, Fleming, in her late teens, had moved there and was studying dance. She eventually landed at the American Ballet Theater at the time when all the Russians were defecting, and she got to share the same hallways as Nuriev, Barishnikov, and Twyla Tharp. At 55, after nearly three decades of professional ice cream and cookie making, she still has the lithe build of a dancer. She gave herself until 25 to make it in a major dance company, waitressing a bit along the way to pay the bills. She was working at a dive restaurant when a co-worker's husband introduced her to some guys who were opening a restaurant on the Upper East Side. I wasn't in the food world, she says. I wasn't reading magazines or anything. I was just digging the restaurant business, and it turned out to be Jonathan Waxman and Jams. Jams is a restaurant of legendary excess and wide influence. Claudia was on the opening team in 1984. It was the first place where a real in-the-flesh disciple of Alice Waters, Jonathan Waxman, who had run the kitchen at Chez Panisse, brought some of the ideas of the Covenant of Berkeley to New York. So we had free-range chicken, organic baby vegetables, Laura Chanel goat cheese, who knew about goat cheese at the time, all FedExed from California every day. I had a hard time picking my job off the lawn. This is a business where the talk of margins is typically accompanied by modifiers like razor-thin or non-existent. Really? FedExed? Those were the heady days of grilled chicken and french fries for $32, Fleming says, citing Jam's most famous dish. That would be a $61 dish of chicken and fries in 2013. It was fun, fun, fun. There were Hockneys on the wall and Janori China on the table, the waitresses wore white bucks. Mick Jagger came for dinner, she recalls. Jonathan and Melvin, the chef and his business partner, Melvin Master, would rack up a $10,000 lunch bill in a month at La Galoo. They were drinking Cristal at breakfast. Fleming eventually became the office manager and was often told to lock up the credit cards, 
only to be bribed into releasing them when she was invited to come along to lunch, too. But the bright light's big city excess isn't why Jams was an important station on her journey. It was the food, which was called Californian at the time. There was grilled pork tenderloin in a salad, she told me with honest reverence and still-preserved enthusiasm, even though that sounds Trey Olive Garden today. When she saw I was unmoved, I think she felt the generation gap between us. People weren't doing that at the time. I come from an Italian family, so good food was always in my life, but not different good food. Then there was the kitchen, where three women held positions of power. Stephanie, Helen, who was later married to Alfred Portale, and Gail. I loved them. It was very much a man's world, and they made me think I could do it, she said of kitchen work, which she was slowly being seduced by. They were incredibly inspirational, every bit as effective and efficient as a man, especially Jonathan, who was anything but effective and efficient. She still has great affection for Waxman, now the chef-owner of Barbudo in the West Village, as does nearly anyone I've ever met who has worked with him. He knows everybody, or somebody who knows the person you're looking for. He regularly helped open doors for Claudia as she made her way. But once it was clear that the cocaine-fueled rocket ship that was Jams wasn't going to stay aloft forever, Claudia found new employees a server at Union Square Cafe. This was shortly after it opened, when Danny Meyer was still working the floor and wet behind the ears before he became a burger baron. He was Mr. Nerd compared to the two guys I'd been working for, she says, and the food wasn't great. But the restaurant was still white-hot. Fleming dabbled in the kitchen at Jams, and as she neared 30, realized she wanted to get more serious about it. As she saw it, waiting tables was a dead-end game. She nurtured a daydream of a sandwich shop that supplied the jitney buses that connect the city to Long Island, and she enrolled at Peter Kump's New York Cooking School when it was still just an uptown townhouse, before it became the Institute of Culinary Education. But she found school to be a waste of time. She preferred to learn on the job. She split her time between the kitchen and the dining room at Union Square Cafe, then staged at Montrachet under Deborah Ponzek, who righted the course of that restaurant after the departure of its opening chef, David Boulay, and kept its three stars from the New York Times. When Union Square Cafe needed an assistant pastry chef, she took the job and has never left the pastry kitchen. It seemed like the fastest way to get somewhere, and a lot better than duking it out with 20-year-old boys on the line, I like the autonomy. It's so separate from the kitchen. You have your own plates and your own space. I can't even handle the knives and fire and boys and... She makes a sound, indicating she is and was too old to deal with her immaturity. After Union Square, she went to work at Tribeca Grill, where she reported to Jerry Hayden, the man she would marry a little more than a decade later. Jerry is the sort of cook's cook who mastered both the pastry and savory sides of the kitchen and could run either. At Tribeca Grill, he did, under the stewardship of executive chef Don Pintabona. He was a perfect fit for Claudia, a de facto pastry chef, not someone born to it. Soon enough, phone calls started to trickle in, pastry chef job offers. Even though she'd barely been in the kitchen a couple years, she'd worked at the right places, met the right people. It was like, I don't know anything. So she decided to get serious about the profession and get a real education, so she didn't always feel like she was treading water. I'd always wanted to go to work with Nancy Silverton, because she was my idol, she says. Jimmy Brinkley, the pastry chef at Jams, had worked for her, 
at Campanile, the groundbreaking restaurant Silverton and Mark Peel ran in Los Angeles. And he talked about her all the time. And her first book was what really got me turned on to pastry. She had worked for Wolfgang, so she did this really French stuff, but Americanized it, and that was really appealing to me. Waxman arranged an audience with Nancy Silverton over the phone. I called Nancy, and I asked her a question that when people ask me, I just want to spit on them, she says, taking a second to pitch her voice up to helium height for maximum annoyingness. So what is your favorite dessert? And Nancy said to me, a ripe peach. And I didn't get it, not at all, Claudia says. It's a telling nugget about New York restaurant culture around 1990. California had rediscovered nature and found the writings of Richard Olney and probably Patience Gray. It had embraced simplicity and what we generally shorthand as Mediterranean ideals. New York was still chained to the hierarchical, male-centric conception of kitchens and chefs. Manipulation trumped simpler pleasures on the plate. Claudia had been hounding Maury Rubin to hire her at the City Bakery, New York's hottest bakery at that time. And while he repeatedly told her no, he said I'd take everything he taught me and leave. Her persistence eventually got him halfway. He wouldn't hire her, but he would set her up with a baker he'd studied with in France. And so, at 33, Claudia went east, to Paris. Paris. Claudia arrived. She got an apartment in a lesser arrondissement. She worked. She joined a French-English conversation group that met over wine. The group netted her a French boyfriend, who'd be less than a footnote in her history if he hadn't greeted her one evening with the news that he'd secured her a stage at Fauchon. Fauchon was a great French brand that was heading toward an era of protracted torpor. One thing that elongated that protraction was the hiring of boy genius Pierre Hermé, Claudia arrived four or five years after Hermé had taken over. He was up in the office at that point. They became friends much later in life. At that juncture, she was down in the kitchen, the lone woman working alongside a legion of men. There were 40 boys and me. In Europe, cooking is a trade. Chefs, schmefs. It's for people who can't go to college. This was not the brain trust of France. They were crude and rude and talked about girls and cars. So I was with these 15 to 25-year-old boys, and I was 33 at the time and completely invisible, like I was a grandma, and nobody wanted to talk to me, answer questions, anything. While she was happy to be apprenticing to one of the great pastry chefs of all time, she began to realize that had she gone to work for Nancy Silverton in California, at least someone would have answered her questions. She doubled down on work to make up for it. The morning shift was from 6 to 2, she says. Then the afternoon shift from two to six. I was staying the whole time. It's a factory job. It's fabrication. I loved doing that. I still do. It's the kind of person that I am. It's about cranking it out at a certain point. Claudia's body language changes when she talks about fabrication, about making and making and making. This is a creative field, but that doesn't mean you get to create all the time. You have to do the road thing. You've got to practice your scales. You have to know all your positions. I like to tell kids there's so much opportunity in repetition. It means you can do it better this time than you did last time. You can always do it better. And until you've done it a thousand times, you haven't done it. Until you can fix it, you haven't done it at all. You get to make it the best and then make it better. You get to understand it inside and out. You learn it well enough that you can teach other people. 
The parallels between cooking and dance are all there. The repetition, don't question the guy in charge, wait until an appropriate time to ask a question. Does she enjoy repetition? I wonder aloud. That's just who I am. I like to ask people, do you like monotony? How about working when everybody's having a good time? Weekends, night, no money, no insurance, no vacation. Do you want a dirty, yucky job where you won't get so much respect from anyone outside the kitchen? She did, so she stayed at Fauchamp for six months, working for free. The most puzzling part of her presence for her co-workers was that she wasn't interested in cakes. They thought I was weird because the elite do gâteau, and I was more interested in petit four and doughs. Then she dropped a little bomb. I don't like cake. I probed her on this point and found that she really does not like cakes, particularly the bizarre custard and gelatin-layered affairs that were the height of fashion when she was in Paris, and has worked hard to avoid making them over the years. I just don't get them. I love making custards, frozen or baked or eggless or whatever, and doughs, pies, puff pastry, croissant, and I love making crostatas. If I could make a living just making crostatas, I'd be the happiest person alive. She had one more stop she wanted to make after Hermé. Cozy. I'd ripped this article by Coleman Andrews, who would later found Saveur, about a place called Cozy, where this man baked the bread fresh every day and had marinated sardines and fresh artichokes and prosciutto and all these beautiful ingredients, and people made their own sandwiches. Her dream of a sandwich shop that supplied the jitney was still alive. That's what I wanted to do in the States open something like Cozy. She went and accosted Drew Harre, the chef owner, and told him she practically needed to work there, that she wanted to bring the place back to the States, that she'd work for free. Harre, a New Zealander who had adopted Paris as his home, said, I'm not French, I'll pay you. And she stayed until her visa ran out. She was planning on returning to Paris to work with Harre, who wanted her to stay on and help him grow the business, but a boyfriend convinced her to stay in the States. She started working in New York kitchens again, and one night, Tom Valenti, another name almost lost to time, but a giant of the era, gave her a ride home from a party and told her she should call Tom Calicchio, fresh off a star turn at Mondrian, because he and Danny Meyer were opening a new place together. It was too high profile. It was too much pressure. She didn't want to work for Danny again. She very much liked him, respected him, but it felt like a step backward. She can rattle off a lot of reasons that she wasn't right for the job and the job wasn't right for her. And of course, none of those things were true. Gramercy These days, media fanfare is de rigueur for the opening of a restaurant that has the potential to do more than suck. If an unlikely alliance of rising stars, which is what the partnership of Danny Meyer and Tom Calicchio was at the time, were forming for a restaurant project, Eater would install a webcam and embed a reporter and we'd know every time a nail was pounded or a chair delivered. Gramercy got the 1994 version of that. Peter Kaminsky wrote a multi-page cover story for New York Magazine that hit newsstands opening day and trumpeted Gramercy as an attempt to redefine the four-star restaurant. It set up enormous expectations, though it wasn't as if the pair hadn't courted them. In the years since Claudia first worked for him, Danny Meyer had gone from a wide-eyed aspirant to a bona fide restaurateur, recognized as one of the savviest and most sincerely innovative since Joe Baum. About Calicchio, Fleming says, He's very well-spoken and very intelligent, 
but I was not the least bit charmed by him when I met him. Colicchio had just returned from cooking at Michel Bras, and after hiring Fleming, he spread out the menus and book he'd brought from there. He was like, this is what I want to do. Everything was different. Everything had herbs in it. A version of Bra's molten chocolate cake went on the opening menu along with a panna cotta. Ruth Reichel, reviewing the restaurant for the Times, called it a trembling mound of cream that seems to be held together with a wish. Over the years, buttermilk panna cotta became a Claudia Fleming signature and one of the most imitated dishes from her repertoire. I got the recipe for it in Australian Vogue, Fleming tells me matter-of-factly when I ask about the origin of the dish. I made it once when I was at Lux, the restaurant I was at before I went to Gramercy. I ate it and thought, this is going to be a thing. This is going to be my thing. Those Australian food magazines were awesome, so way ahead of the U.S. Everything was fresh and easy and awesome. In ten or so years of writing about chefs, I can count on the fingers of my elbow how many times one has copped the source of one of their dishes so plainly. For me, nothing is original, Fleming tells me. When pressed, she'll half admit to feeling like an undercredited influence herself, though she hides it well. If you can do it better than me, then hats off to you. It's fucking food. And in my case, it's not even food, it's dessert. You don't need it. It's an afterthought. I mean, I love that about it. You have to choose to have dessert. She delineates what she did, which was giving center stage to dishes that existed in some way, shape, or form before she served them, and what followed. It's easy for me to say nothing is original because I was just working with inspiration from other people, not going into a lab and trying to literally recreate the wheel. That is some crazy shit. I saw a YouTube video of the dessert course at Alinea, where they served the dessert all over the table. She says of a recentish development at Grant Ackett's avant-garde restaurant in Chicago, where a bare tabletop is painted and piled, in an elegant way, with the dessert course. And I'm like, please, God, don't let that catch on. That is going to be a fucking disaster. But people are going to start imitating it. In the short term, it's going to be people who think it's a good idea. But it won't be in the right hands. In ten years, it'll be at Applebee's. How about when everybody starts squirting Hershey's all over the table? Of course, all that remains is something for us to look forward to in the future. Gramercy opened before the first foam ever spurted out of a siphon gun. Her near decade there made Claudia a chef. I would call Tom my greatest mentor. I idolized Nancy and Pierre, but I learned the most from him. He would come over to my station and take stuff and use it, which was secretly thrilling for me. I learned everything from him, about what's good and how to cook. A lot of cooks call me a cook's pastry chef because I don't do frou-frou and I cook a lot of fruit. But I was taking a lot of my cues from the line because I was so insecure about my pastry skills. So I started doing things that people didn't do, which sounds ridiculous to say now, like to saute fruit a la minute. I was covering the fact that I didn't know what was going on. Claudia was in charge of a 10-person pastry team that operated seven days a week, two services doing 500 covers on most days. She created and oversaw 18 desserts between the two menus, plus Petit Four and the like. Late in her tenure there, she replaced the tasting menu Petit Four with a basket of just-made donuts, and it was news. Petit Four can be grotesque at the end of a big meal. They end up in the trash half the time. By the time I left, it was a basket of tiny, warm, just-made donuts. I wanted it to be something enticing. 
These days, at the North Fork Table and Inn, she serves a single housemaid Malamar. Nobody's written about it. It'd be gossip at church on a good Sunday, she quips. Look, I was the it girl for a minute, but it was absolutely because of where I worked. Did I suck at what I did? No, I was good at it. But I worked for Tom and Danny. If I was just Claudia Fleming and I worked somewhere else, I could have been ten times better and no one would have ever heard of me. Tom Colicchio never took credit for what I did, and he always mentioned me, and that's a huge part of it. Anytime they asked Tom to do a fundraiser, he'd say, we'll do dessert, and he'd take me, I'd do all the work, and he would go and play. But look where it got me. Everybody knew who I was. One year at the James Beard Award Ceremony, Claudia ran into her old chef and friend, Jerry Hayden. They got to talking, and a friendship started. It would later become a real relationship. After years of not settling down, she was finally ready, and she and Jerry got married in 2001. They both worked like maniacs, both liked drinking at the bar at the Red Cat, and soon enough, both wanted a family. Her seriousness about the relationship was a big part of the reason she left Gramercy. The other was Kraft, Colicchio's new restaurant project just around the corner. I remember Tom saying it wasn't worth it to upset the apple cart and have me go do Kraft restaurant, Claudia tells me, biting her lip. Fucker. He left me behind. That was so sad. I'll never forgive him for that. My life would have been so different. I would have actually been an executive pastry chef. I would have been traveling. I'd still be in the city. She trails off, still hurt, still feeling abandoned. Karen Damasco, who worked for Claudia for two years, was installed as pastry chef at Kraft, and with Tom absent, Claudia's tenure at Gramercy drew to a close. The East End During that whole time at Gramercy, Claudia's sandwich fixation never quite cured itself. She was offered a job at Pret-a-Manger, a chain from London that had just arrived in New York, and took it. I wanted to be married and have a family. I thought I wanted a different life. I spent six months in meetings, she says of Pret-a-Manger, which she left after those six months, seeing that she'd never really have any effect on the food. And where was I going to go? There was no better restaurant than Gramercy. There was nowhere better to go. There were no better guys to work for. Plus, she says, she felt like she'd had her turn, that it was time to support Jerry, who had toiled for too little credit, building up the names of guys like Charlie Palmer, first at the River Cafe, and then during two separate long spells at Oriel. He got his own place, a muse, soon after, and Claudia worked the door, not the stand mixer. But Jerry's relationship with his partner, Steve Zollis, soured, and Zollis bought out Jerry's interest. The couple landed in Southhold, in the far reaches of the North Fork, two hours east of the city. Claudia was commuting, consulting on the pastry menu at Five Points, but soon enough a plan hatched to open Jerry's dream restaurant out on Long Island and cut their ties with the city. The dream was his own restaurant, which wasn't going to happen in the city, because who was going to give him the money? They found a restaurant and inn at a price they could almost manage. They tore the place apart, put in a poshly comfortable dining room, and opened it in 2006, serving dinner on the weekends to city refugees and wine country tourists who needed a place to eat or sleep. A few years later, Claudia installed a food truck in the parking lot. The truck was so fugly, they ended up putting a trompe l'oeil painted fence around it to help it blend into the landscaping, and started serving lunch and pastries. In 2011, Jerry found he was having trouble holding a pan. 
He thought he had a pinched nerve, and so he did what good cooks do, which is work through the pain. Even in his mid-forties, Hayden was the kind of chef who wanted to be on the line cooking. His mold was cast when that was what cooks did and aspired to do. When the muscle between his thumb and forefinger started disappearing and grasping pans became near impossible, he went to the doctor and was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, sometimes called Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS is a degenerative muscle disease. Your senses are fine. It's so weird. There's no cure and no treatment, and when you're diagnosed, you get a three- to five-year life expectancy. Ultimately, what happens is your lungs, which are dependent on muscle, stop working, so you can't breathe, Claudia tells me matter-of-factly, as we drive from her restaurant to a nearby apple stand to pick fruit for that night's dinner service. Oddly enough, she adds, the two muscles that aren't affected are the heart and the eyes. Jerry and Claudia had finally opened his dream restaurant. They'd tried to have a family, but now fully had each other. Jerry quit drinking before the North Fork Inn opened, and Claudia barely drinks anymore as a result. Now there was this to contend with, and a business that requires an extraordinary amount of daily labor from the two of them to keep running. Some old friends, like Don Pintabona, the chef at Tribeca Grill, where Claudia and Jerry met, have stepped up and stepped in, trying to help carry the load where Jerry can't anymore. This summer, disregarding his condition, Jerry organized and launched a Friday morning farmer's market. Local oystermen, ranchers, orchards, and fruit farms now gather to sell to the community and weekenders in the parking lot of the inn. But in the six weeks leading up to my interview with Claudia, Jerry had experienced a steep decline. The wheelchair was huge because once you get in, you're not getting out. He was dreading it, dreading it like didn't want to live. But then when we got it, it was like, oh my God, this is so much easier. It's like you never really know when you've had enough, Claudia says. She smiles for a second. Even in a wheelchair, he's in his kitchen more than most chefs. But he can't lift his arm to feed himself more than a few bites. He can't throw the covers off if he's warm. At a certain point, I assume that your life is so consumed with just trying to breathe that you can't think about asking for help. The ego is just completely gone. That has probably been as hard or harder than stopping drinking. He never asked anybody for help for anything, ever, so for him to ask for help is very hard. The amount of work that he's had to put in on being okay with that, I mean, nobody works harder. He's always trying to get his head around something. I can't even imagine. I'm living this, and I don't even understand it. It's too bizarre. She wells up as she tells me about a recent ALS benefit she cooked for at Hearth in Manhattan, and how she spent the next night in the city to tape a television segment and snuck out to eat a blue ribbon, an old haunt by herself. Jerry handles this. There are not words, so she omits them. It's really amazing. I'd be a wreck. I don't know what he's found. How the fuck am I going to support myself for the next who knows how many years? Am I employable? I'm 55 years old. That's old to be, like, looking for work. It's kind of scary. My dad died really young. He died when he was 56. He worked really hard. He was a freaking purchasing agent for a school district, but he took his job so seriously. I was like, Dad, you can't get so worked up about stuff. Your job does not define you. Ha, <laughs> really? And he just looked sad because it did define him, and it's all he knew how to do. And it seems hilarious in retrospect that I had the gall to say that to him when I did the same exact thing. She says she has friends who can help out, and she's talking mainly about Mike and Mary Mraz, the couple that runs the inn and the front of house at the restaurant. 
In my brief interactions with them, they seem extraordinarily patient, capable, and kind. Claudia spoils Mike and Mary's boys in hopes that when they go through that disobedient phase of their teenage years, they'll come running to her. And I do love what I do, she says. I told Mary, all I want to do is come in the morning, see an empty cart, fill it up, and go home. I just like making shit. With that, Claudia had to check on dinner service before going home to be with Jerry. I went to catch the jitney and for a few hours back to the city, watched sandy cornfields give way to browned-out towns until New York rose up, twinkling in the distance. End note. Jerry Hayden passed away at the age of 50, two years after this piece was first published in Lucky Peach No. 9, 2013. At MagCulture, we love magazines. To hear more about what we do, visit our website, magculture.com. This podcast is presented by WeTransfer Studios and MagCulture. Visit wetransfer.com slash thisworks to see more of our creative collaborations.